welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, Director of Resources and Technology for the NMVVRC, and today's pod is going to be a little bit different for us. Most of our conversations so far have understandably been centered around victims, victims' rights, victim services, and advocacy and treatment for mass violence victims. But today we're going to be talking a bit about mass violence perpetrators and and getting into their possible motivations. Specifically, we're going to be talking about some new research that addresses the relationship between mass shooters and another type of serious crime, domestic violence. And to help us shed some light on this important topic, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Lisa Geller, the author of a new and I think important piece of research examining the link between mass shootings and domestic violence. Welcome to the MVP, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Lisa is the state affairs manager for the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence in Washington, D.C., and her job, kind of in a nutshell, is to research, advocate for, and implement evidence-based ways of reducing gun violence. She got her undergrad degree from Wisconsin and her MPH from Johns Hopkins, and I'm really excited that you're here with us today. Before we jump into your research and findings, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in researching mass shootings? Absolutely. So I started working at the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence in 2015, and since then the movement has changed quite a bit. And we've become, I think, more inclusive and better at working with groups in other spaces, such as suicide prevention and domestic violence prevention. And I'd always been interested in this link between gun violence and domestic violence, but it really wasn't until I got to grad school that I started to do my own research on this topic and dive in a little bit more. And so in 2018, when I was getting my master's in public health at Johns Hopkins, I was brainstorming what I wanted to write my master's thesis on, and I began looking more into this role of domestic violence in gun violence, and specifically in mass shootings, and found that there was somewhat limited research on this topic. That was actually a question that I was really, really curious about, was where did this idea come from to look into the backgrounds of mass shooters, specifically with an eye towards their histories of domestic violence? Was there a specific incident or a specific situation that made that light bulb go off for you? Or or how did that come about? Well, I just want to start by saying that although I looked at mass shootings, these incidents do not make up the majority of gun deaths in this country or gun violence in this country. There are around 40,000 gun deaths and over 80,000 non-fatal gun injuries every year. And estimates show that mass shooting fatalities represent about 1% of all firearm homicide fatalities in the U.S. Absolutely. It, it's, it gets a lot of news, but it is not a significant portion of, of violence. You are 100% correct. Exactly. However, we know that because these are the incidents that make the news, they're shocking to people. They instill a sense of fear that anyone could be a victim of gun violence at any time. And I, I do understand that fear. But I also wanted to caveat by saying that these are statistically rare events. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I think a lot of the conversations around mass shootings ignore this domestic violence component and often focus on these so-called public mass shootings because they may be higher um, fatalities, there may be more fatalities, and they seem like they're potentially unpredictable events. Mm -hmm. 
but by only focusing on public events, it means that um, we're not looking at events that may occur in, in private places such as homes and therefore are ignoring a large portion of mass shootings in this country and gun violence in this country. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that that's definitely the case. And is that sort of, was that the link for you was to, to try and look at sort of the more common type of violence uh, or a more common type of, of violence, domestic violence, and then sort of look back at the less common mass violence, mass shooting events? Yeah, I think we just wanted to see um, how this domestic violence connection played out because I had noticed that there were some studies on this, but they weren't all peer-reviewed. They weren't really, not a lot of these studies were published in journals that had gone through the peer review process. And I really wanted to take the time um, and not only replicate some of the findings that may have already existed, but come up with some new analyses to run and see if I could potentially find something that was unique and contributed to the literature. And I, and I think that we did that. Well, I, I just, I want to say, you know, kudos to you for doing that. I think it's, I mean, A, that's the scientific process right there is, you know, sort of take an observation and uh, make a hypothesis about it and then go and actually conduct some research on on that hypothesis to see whether it's it's holds water or not. I mean, I I kind of had wondered whether you were going to say that you had just sort of seen an occasional anecdote, like after a mass violence event, it just sort of seems like on Twitter um, or other social media, there's often this, oh, hey, did you notice, by the way, the perpetrator of this person also had a restraining order against his ex-girlfriend or, you know, something like that. And uh, that just sort of happens enough times that it, it, it's really kind of like, is that a thing? Um, but of course, just like you're saying, you know, splash events are not necessarily the norm. Um, you know, it's a reasonable question about whether, you know, that's just a, a coincidence uh, kind of observation in these kinds of cases. Yeah, that that is certainly true. I've given several presentations on this topic over the years. And every time I Google domestic violence and gun violence or domestic violence and mass shootings, there's always some headline that says, oh, did you know that this perpetrator had abused the person before this fatality occurred? Or it, like you said, this person had a restraining order that may have been violated or potentially a case where there were um, no real warning signs or there was no legal action that had already been taken. And so my role as an advocate um, and as a researcher is to focus on prevention. And that's one of the things that I do the most in my work. Gotcha. So Lisa, for those members of our audience who might not be as steeped in the process of research or academia as, as you and I, having suffered through years in graduate school and, and mm -hmm. dealing with publication, what does it mean um, for a study to be peer reviewed? Like what, what does that um, connote or what does that mean about a paper? It means that when I've submitted this paper with my co-authors, that other academics in the field who are experts on this topic have basically said, this is a good quality paper or this should be published. So when you submit a paper for peer review, others, your peers in the field, review the paper, they give their feedback. My paper went through actually three rounds of peer review, meaning that I submitted it, I got feedback, I incorporated that feedback, I resubmitted it, I got more feedback. In order to make this paper what um, I considered and what the people who reviewed this paper considered to be of good academic quality, scientific quality. So 
who did you collaborate with on this project? And I'm also really curious, did you have any sort of um, financial or official sponsor or support for this research? So I originally started this research, as I said, uh, uh, during graduate school as a part of my master's thesis. And I worked under the guidance of my advisor, Dr. Daniel Webster, who's one of the leading experts in the field of gun violence prevention and policy. The paper that I ultimately submitted at the end of grad school was quite different than the paper you can read today. Um, And that's because I I really did need the support of my co-authors, who I credit with making this as robust as it is. So after I graduated, I wanted to improve upon the existing paper and get it ready for publication, something I'd actually never done before. I reached out to faculty at Johns Hopkins at their Center for Gun Violence Prevention and Policy, and two of their esteemed faculty, Dr. Cassandra Krafasi and Marissa Booty, agreed to serve as co-authors for this paper. And so after a few years of, of shaping it up, uh, the paper was finally published in May of 2021, and the Smart Family Foundation is a foundation that funds Johns Hopkins. They did pay for open access of this article, which I'm very grateful for because it means that anyone, regardless of whether they have a journal subscription or not, can look at the findings of this study. Oh, that's really cool. That's very important. And I, I say that as someone who who does some research and you know, libraries don't always have every journal that you need to access to to do a comprehensive literature review. And, and that kind of availability is really um, super helpful. So kudos uh, to you and to the Smart Family Foundation for making that happen. So tell us a little bit, Lisa, about the actual research itself. Where did you get your data? How did you collect it and, and analyze it? We cross-referenced data from the Gun Violence Archive with news articles The Gun Violence Archive is one of the largest areas um, for collecting any news articles that come up about gun violence in this country, including mass shootings. And so they've been collecting data since 2014. Anything that makes the news essentially goes into the Gun Violence Archive. So with a huge caveat that they don't really collect information about suicides uh, unless they're tied to a homicide, just because, as we know, a lot of firearm suicides don't make the news. But what we did was we looked at all the available data at the time that we started um, doing this, which was in 2020. So we looked at data from 2014 to 2019 and cross-referenced any of those incidents in the gun violence archive with news articles for 110 mass shootings during the study period. And what we wanted to see was we wanted to figure out if the perpetrator had a history of domestic violence or if the victims of the shooting were family or intimate partner. And the gun violence archives use a broader definition of a mass shooting than we used. We defined it a mass shooting as an incident with four or more fatalities by gunfire, not including the perpetrator. So what we did with this information was we identified each shooting as either a domestic violence related, a history of domestic violence, or a non-domestic violence related mass shooting. Cool. So the definition you used of four or more fatalities... How did you arrive at that? Because, and the reason I'm asking is um, the NMVVRC has a long, well, I don't know about a long, but but our director and our center has struggled with exactly this issue about what, what counts as mass violence versus non-mass violence. And there are lots of different definitions about that. And I'm just sort of curious about how your team settled on the four or more fatalities, not including the shooter. 
That's an important question and one that we talked about at length before we decided okay. what definition to use, because obviously if you're using a definition of three or more or four or more, but they don't have to be fatalities, you're going to get a vastly different sample size. So to be quite honest, we settled on four or more shot and killed, not including the perpetrator for two reasons. The first reason was because this is something that I had seen done in the literature a lot. This was a definition mm -hmm. that I had seen used. And so I wanted really to be able to replicate findings by using a similar definition. Mm -hmm. And the second reason was because unfortunately in this country, we have so many mass shootings mm -hmm. that for the period I was working on this, which was intended to just be grad school initially, I did not have time to go through all of the shootings if I had used a much broader definition. Mm -hmm. But it is something that I'm looking to do with future work is expand that definition. Gotcha. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, Lisa, actually, that as, a, as for both of those, comparability across studies is important. Mm -hmm. And if you use an outlier definition, your study can be marginalized uh, because of that. Right. And let's face it, the study needs to get done. And uh, there's only so much time. And I, I agree, if you start lowering it to three or two, uh, the number of incidents that you have to try to catalog and analyze um, could easily become prohibitive pretty quickly, I'll bet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you looked at the Gun Violence Archive news stories about those events and identified the crimes as domestic violence related, having a history of domestic violence, or not being domestic violence related at all. And I'm really curious, what did the results show? The results were interesting. So we looked for two main things. We wanted to see what percent of mass shootings in this country are related to domestic violence, either through that direct contact of a perpetrator killing a family or intimate partner, or through the perpetrator's history of domestic violence. And when we look at both of those together, which is what we called our hybrid category, we found that more than two thirds of mass shootings in this country during that study period are related to domestic violence. So that's a huge, huge number. Um, if we just looked at the incidents where the fatalities were of family or intimate partners, that number was 59%. And then an additional 10% of these shootings were carried out by someone with a history of domestic violence. Okay. In addition, um, yeah, the, the, this was uh, something that I had seen replicated before, but not too many times. And so, I, you know, my results kind of held, but Actually, some of the results here found that the, the prevalence of, mass, of domestic violence in mass shootings was larger than had been previously indicated. And we also found that domestic violence-related mass shootings were associated with a higher case fatality rate than those without a domestic violence connection, meaning that there were a higher percent of fatalities in shootings that were DV-related than those that were unrelated to DV. And so on average, only one in six people survived a domestic violence-related mass shooting compared to one in three people surviving a mass shooting without a domestic violence connection. That's really interesting. So kind of to illustrate that a different way, I, I guess, if a domestic violence shooter entered into a, uh, a house with 10 people that were related to him and sort of conducted a shooting, that's, that's what a strange way to, to say that, versus a, a non-domestic violence related offender who went into, let's say, a, a place of business where there were also 10 people, the odds of survival in the business would be higher than the odds of survival in the home. 
That is a tricky question to to answer. I think what is different here is that we were, for the most part, comparing these domestic violence incidents that may have occurred in a private space like a home compared to some of these public mass shootings we think about, like the Orlando nightclub shooting mm-hmm. or the the Las Vegas concert shooting, although those are actually the Las Vegas shooting was an outlier for this study, so it was excluded. But if we're comparing a, a shooting in a shopping mall, or maybe there are more places for a victim to go um, mm. oh, compared to something in a house, or really what we talk about in the discussion of this paper, and we didn't control for a lot of things, so I'll give that huge caveat that we didn't control for some of the factors that we wanted to discuss, was that if you think about the motive or you think about the intent behind these shooters, it may be very different from someone who is intending to kill a specific person than someone who is just shooting randomly and maybe is, doesn't have their sights set on one person, but rather a group of people. I think that that's a very insightful observation and and an important level of analysis. I mean, just thinking about the different environments there are if, I, if you're in the living room or the bedroom, it's not like you can run into someplace and hide behind a big desk while right. the person marches down the mall or through the warehouse or wherever a work-related shooting might take place. Uh, the The motive does seem to be, and, and, and I hope we can talk a little bit more about motives, although we're probably going to tiptoe into conjecture about that, mm-hmm. but this mm-hmm. is a podcast, so that's okay. Um <laughs> It, it does sort of get at trying to understand a little bit about the motives of these folks. I'm, I think when you think of someone who is engaged in a mass shooting that targets um, his family, and I'm, I'm using a male pronoun there largely on purpose, um, the, the motive sort of, I mean, it doesn't seem to require as much explanation, but someone who goes to a workplace and conducts a mass shooting, but who also has a history of domestic violence, you really start to wonder about what makes that person tick and what might really be driving that kind of aggressive homicidal action to people that are not necessarily in his living in arrangement. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you guys spend any time thinking about that or conjecturing about perpetrator motives and and what might tip the scales for someone to engage in behavior like this? We talked a little bit about potential explanations for why these DV-related mass shootings might have a higher uh, case fatality rate and focusing mostly on the intent behind a perpetrator who you know, is intending to kill a family member or, or more likely an intimate partner and how that might be different from someone, as I mentioned, someone who might just be set on killing people indiscriminately. Again, we didn't control for some of these variables that may have affected who survives and who doesn't, including how far they are from a hospital, you know, how quickly it takes right. someone to come and treat these wounds. So that's not something that we were able to control for during this study. But I really think it it's it makes a lot of sense that the intent behind someone or the motive behind a DV related mass shooting might be revenge or jealousy or this desire to um, assert control over someone or even suicidality. I can talk a little bit more about that, but we looked at how many of these perpetrators died by suicide. And so Mm -hmm. some of the, the motive behind some of these perpetrators just might've been different from someone 
who just wanted to kill, didn't care who they were killing or where. Um, or maybe they did, but the, the intent seems a lot clearer when we're looking at these domestic violence cases. Yeah, yeah. So um, were there any th- any of your results that really surprised you, that made you sit up and go, wow, that was unexpected? I think that although there have been other articles showing that domestic violence plays a role in mass shootings and in gun violence, the results of this paper are inherently still surprising. I'm still surprised to see how big of a role it did play. And granted, we only looked at these very rare events and only looked at 110 shootings because some of the mass shootings during the study period had a perpetrator that was unknown and therefore we were unable to assess the relationships. But it it may seem logical that domestic violence shootings have a higher case fatality rate for some of those reasons that we speculated about, but it's Mm -hmm. still surprising and troubling to see how much higher the case fatality rate for these shootings are when compared to other mass shootings and really looking at who is surviving. And when we're talking about shootings that have upwards of 80% case fatality rate, it seems very unlikely that people are going to survive these incidents. So I hope that policymakers and advocates read these findings and have the urge to focus on disarming individuals with histories of domestic violence. Okay, so that was actually something that I was going to inquire about uh, a little bit later. But since you, you you raised that very explicitly there, I'm kind of wondering what you see as uh, the the policy implications, the the public health implications of the the results that you were able to find. I think that there are two things that I'm hoping to focus on. And if I take off my researcher hat and put on my activist hat, because that's a large part of the work that I do, I think we need to focus more um, on these private shootings or so-called private shootings, because if we're focusing solely on how to prevent these seemingly random acts of violence where the motive is unclear, we might lose sight of the real mission, which is to prevent gun violence in all its forms. And domestic violence is a critical risk factor for many forms of gun violence. So I'm, in my work, going to be focusing on strengthening existing state policies that are related to domestic violence, including domestic violence protection orders and extreme risk protection orders. But I'm also working to pass new policies in states that don't have these laws already so that it is easier and more explicit on how to remove a firearm from someone with a history of domestic violence or a history of any form of violence towards towards themselves or others. Okay. So the implication is it's kind of a stimulus control approach where you're going to limit access. Uh, the, the, the goal should be from, uh, and if I'm understanding you correctly, for certain groups of people with histories that we know are associated with future problems to limit their access to uh, dangerous weapons and uh, thereby decrease the possibility that they'll use them in a, a way that either harms them or harms their families. Exactly. It's just too easy to to get a gun in this country. And there are too many people who should be prohibited, but the law isn't explicit enough that the firearm removal happens, or there are all sorts of problems with running a background check. You know, there's this Charleston loophole. That means mm-hmm. if the background check isn't able to be run in, in a certain number of days, then the sale can go through, this default proceed where the, the firearm sale can go through. And Sometimes you just need more time to run a more comprehensive check. For the most part, these checks don't take long at all, but sometimes they do. And by improving this process and just putting in enough mechanisms that the number of people who can fall through these cracks is as small as can be is going to save lives. Gotcha. So one 
sort of question I, I wondered about in terms of if you have any goals about examining the relationship between domestic violence and mass shootings further, one thing that jumps out is, you know, domestic violence is, is a very common crime mm-hmm. in the United States. Lots of people engage in domestic violence. And thankfully, uh, they don't all go on to become mass shooters, um, at least not yet. Right. Uh, and, there's clearly some sort of a connection uh, based on your research. What do you think some of the next steps might be in examining this connection and maybe trying to help better understand if there are particular risk factors that make some domestic violence perpetrators more likely to go on to commit mass shootings versus others? That's absolutely correct. Research shows that one in four women and one in seven men will experience severe physical violence at the hands of their intimate partner in their lifetime. And that's a huge number of people. And of course, we know the number of fatalities from domestic violence is not that number. So not everyone is going to go on and kill a partner. And I'm very grateful for that. However, we know that easy access to guns can be a deciding factor in to whether someone lives or dies because firearms are highly lethal. And this is one of the reasons why female intimate partner homicide victims are killed with a gun more than all other means combined. So personally, I'm interested in seeing if our findings hold, if we expand our definition of a mass shooting Mm -hmm. to include, like we mentioned, incidents where four or more people are shot and not necessarily killed. Um, And I'm just interested in seeing what role domestic violence plays in other forms of gun violence. So not just looking at these statistically rare events, because I know that it is a risk factor, but you have to do the research. You have to get that Um, through the peer review process to make sure that your assumptions are actually holding in the science. Yeah. I think one of the things that you mentioned in the the statistic that you cited there, I think is often overlooked. One in four women and one in seven men are are the victims of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. um, In the research that you conducted, looking at the mass shooting events, how many of the mass shooting events were perpetrated by women? Very few. Um, There were a few, and there were some cases you can think of, um, maybe you remember some of these incidents, but there were a few situations where it was multiple perpetrators. Um, One in California where it was a husband and wife duo, Um, but it's very rare. And so I, like you mentioned, using he, him pronouns, I often default to that. And I sometimes apologize for that, but it's so ingrained in me because the overwhelming majority of these shootings and gun violence in general is perpetrated by men. However, it doesn't mean that that is never going to be perpetrated by a a woman. It's just a lot uh, less common. Yeah. It's sort of, like you said, it's sort of a default um, opting for for the more likely. Well, that's interesting. Do you have any sort of thoughts about why that is? Is that sort of a, I mean, I know there are studies linking um, different methods of suicide and suicide attempts by gender, um, where I think if I remember right from my graduate school days, that um, women are actually more likely to attempt suicide. Men are more likely to be successful. And that's largely because they use more lethal means like guns. Exactly. Am I in the right ballpark? Exactly. So that, that is 100% true. And we know that when someone uses a gun to attempt suicide, it's almost always going to be fatal 90% of the time. 
but other means such as hanging or cutting, those are lethal only about, not only, but about two to 3% of the time. And so mm. the means matters. And if you're using a gun, you're not going to get a second chance usually. And, and men are much more likely to pick that mean. That's an interesting sort of gendered association there that, um, you know, we see men uh, being far and away the more likely perpetrators of, of mass shootings, um, domestic violence related or not. And um, sort of a, this also this proclivity to engage in self-directed violence um, using firearms as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, as a psychologist, it certainly raises questions for me about sort of socialization issues and uh, what kinds of things uh, men in today's society are, I don't know whether it's whether they're learning about or associations they make um, between how to get something accomplished and and firearms or something like that. That's not a particularly well articulated uh, proposition, but I, I think it kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you're saying, and I think we have seen time and time again that men are just more likely to pick up the gun. It's not mm-hmm. to say that men aren't victimized. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. We know, no. as I mentioned, that men experience domestic violence at very high rates too in this country. It's just the means that are used, the method that's used is less likely to be lethal for men. And of course, I'm assuming that this is a man in a relationship with a woman, just because women are, are less likely to use a firearm on a partner. Mm-hmm. So if someone wanted to read this excellent study that you and your co-authors have published, uh, how would they go about finding it? Thanks for asking that. Um, <laughs> the the article is available for anyone to read, as I mentioned, through open access from the Journal of Injury Epidemiology. And if anyone is interested in learning more about this topic, my organization, the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence, has a lot of information regarding the link between domestic violence and firearms, among other topics on our website at www.efsgv.org. And the researchers at Hopkins are experts in the field of gun policy, so you can feel free to reach out to me or either of my co-authors to talk about this more. That's great. And I, I strongly encourage folks who are interested in this topic and, and the nexus between domestic violence and mass shootings uh, to do just that. Um, Lisa, this has been a really interesting and educational conversation for me. Uh, I want to really congratulate you and your co-authors on doing such an important and significant uh, bit of research to help shine the light and provide some empirical validation for this sort of commonplace observation that mass shooters and domestic violence seem to go together. Now we know, based on your analysis, that uh, they they really do. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the kind of thing we need a lot more of um, from a research perspective when we start thinking about mass violence and other kinds of violence as well. Again, you know, we're a mass violence center, but as you've correctly pointed out, mass violence is a, is a tip of the iceberg when it comes to firearm violence and domestic violence and other types of violence in general. Um, any last things you wanted to say or points you wanted to make that I failed to uh, ask you about? I will just add one more thing because I think that the conversation around mass shootings and while I think this has gotten better, usually defaults to blaming those living with mental illness. And so I just want to say that 
we know that individuals living with mental illness are much more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. And this doesn't mean that some of the perpetrators in our study did not live with mental illness, but it means that we shouldn't immediately jump to this conclusion after a shooting, nor should we stigmatize those individuals. We instead need to focus on these evidence-based risk factors for violence. For mass shootings, that can be hard to know because they're rare events and, and that's a great thing. But we do know that there are risk factors for gun violence in general, including this history of domestic violence that can be a predictor of future violence. I'm giving you a standing ovation from my <laughs> office. Uh, that's, that's such an important point. It's a point that we at the NMVVRC have been very vocal about uh, in the past. Whenever there's a mass shooting event, there's almost reflexively, um, oh, well, clearly this person was mentally unwell. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is such an insufficient explanation for the behavior that it, it's, um, it, does not, it does not drive the conversation forward. It does not increase our understanding the same way that excellent research like yours and your co-authors does. And so I, I really appreciate your pointing that out because I do think it's, it's 100% on the ball. Well, thank you. I appreciate more people engaging in that narrative because that's really the only way we're going to change the consensus in this country. I, I agree 1000%. Lisa, thank you so much for taking time this afternoon to speak with us. We really uh, appreciated uh, talking with you. We've been talking with Lisa Geller, the State Affairs Manager for the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence in Washington, D.C., uh, about her groundbreaking research linking domestic violence to mass shootings. Um, Thanks very much for listening to another episode of the MVP. And thanks again, Lisa. We really appreciated your time. Thank you so much. 